Lord, we love you today. We love you today. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your goodness, Lord. Thank you for your mercy and for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. past the, the presence of God. And in every service there is the, the hope and the anticipation of a God moment. And all of the moments should be about God, but what I mean by a God moment is where you know that God has shown up. That it's not just us singing a song, it's not just preaching a sermon, it's not going through the agenda, but God has shown up in a tangible and real way. Now, aren't you thankful for His presence? Would you give the Lord one more praise before we read the Word today? Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah. After some five months of being in the book of Acts, only got through chapter 17 with all of the various special services that we've had, I felt the Lord leading me to suspend that and to move to something else for a moment in time. And the month of August, we have a couple of special services coming up and be preaching this series, but I am going to endeavor to preach through the seven signs in the book of, of the Gospel of John, seven miracles that Jesus did and that John records demonstrating specifically the deity of Christ and I'm preaching that not to try to convince you of his deity, which is what John was writing it for, but to open our understanding that we have a God who is on our side. We have a God who is for us, a God who can do whatever you need, a God who loves each of us with a love that we can't even fathom and understand. And for the theme passage of the series, read John 20 verses 30 and 31 today and then I'll read our specific text. It says this, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you might or may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name specifically today going to look at John chapter 2 the first miracle of Jesus recorded in the gospel of John reading the, ver the first 11 verses today on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. 
His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were there six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, they did not know where it came from, though the servants who had thrown the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. I want to preach today just for a little while. When Jesus meets faith, when Jesus meets faith. God bless you. You may be seated. It has become fairly Oh, before I begin, if you would like Spanish translation, I think some of you already have it. If you need a headset, uh, they are available in the back corner. And uh, so thankful for Belkey translating and others who fill in when she is not able to be here. But there is an uh, activity that has been developed for team building. It's called a trust fall. I've never actually done a trust fall because I typically don't trust the people who would ask me to do that. I'm not going to put my health or life or body in their hands. Now, if I was at a particular team-building exercise and, and we were doing something, I'm, I might would participate in that, but just somebody come up, hey, let's practice, practice a trust fall. Not really going to happen too much. It'd be like, you know, maybe they have ADHD and be like, I got you, a squirrel. And then, you know, I'm on the, whatever. And I, you just never know what's going to happen. And so I, I'm not one to put myself in that position. But there are many variants. One type of trust fall, a group will stand in a circle and you just kind of fall one way and they'll catch you and push you another way and you just keep kind of uh, meandering around, falling into different people. And then some trust falls, they'll... You get elevated, not just standing on the ground, but you get on a stage or something high, and then you fall, and a group of people are supposed to catch you. And I, I definitely don't think I want to do that. But they do this trying to garner and get trust in the person who's doing it, that you can trust your team, you can trust those that you are participating in this with, and Unfortunately, while it may help in that particular exercise, research says that it doesn't really cause you to trust them in any other area, only when you're doing that exercise. So there's little value in that. We go through life putting our trust in people all of the time. It's just part of life. You can't go through distrusting everybody. You'll be isolated, and you'll be a hermit, you'll be by yourself. And then you won't even trust the groceries that you have. Maybe they poison them. So we trust in all areas of life and various ways and various capacities and various levels of trust. The reality is that at some point in our lives, people will let us down. 
that people that we have placed our trust in, they're going to mess up, they're going to make a mistake, because those people that we have placed our trust in, they are fallen human beings just like we are. They, they make mistakes, they're not always perfect, they're not always going to be there. However, for those of us who know Jesus Christ, we can put our trust in Him at all times. And the reality of that is that Jesus will never let us down. That there will never be a point in our lives where we fail or he fails to follow through on what he has said. We can trust him. Now, I would not tell you that you're going to get everything you want. But we can trust him to do what is best for us. That we can trust Him that He is going to be at work on our behalf. And that when we go through difficulty, we can trust that He is with us in the middle of the difficulty. Often we're asking to get out of it. Lord, deliver me from my situation and deliver me from my circumstance. And sometimes He does, but sometimes He says, I'm just going to be here with you as we go through it. Sometimes... He is with us in the storm instead of taking us from the storm. But we can trust Him. We can put our belief and our faith in Him. The text that I read to you, it is the first of seven miracles or signs that are in the Gospel of John. And a sign as it is used is a miracle that is showing something in particular it's not just a random act of the supernatural but it is a a miracle that is used to demonstrate something in particular it is in the gospel of john these miracles or these signs are used to demonstrate jesus's power that he has all power and we're going to see six additional miracles through the gospel of john that we'll walk through over the next couple of months John has set out to prove the deity of Jesus. He has set out to prove that Jesus is not only Messiah, but as Messiah, he is indeed the God of the universe. We have these seven miracles, and John loves sevens. He's doing it as a memory device and a rhetorical device. And and people would say that seven is God's perfect number, and maybe that's why he's doing it. But really... It's not just seven is God's perfect number, but it is a sign of completion or perfection. And so he has seven I am statements in here. And I won't preach through the I am statements, but statements such as I am the way, the truth, and the life. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the vine, and I am the light of the world. And, And things where he is using a specific phrase that the Jews understood from the Old Testament to only apply to God, and Jesus uses those and makes those claims, I am the good shepherd. There are seven witnesses that testify of Jesus. There are seven ministries of the Spirit that we see, the Holy Spirit that we see in the Gospel of John. There are seven particular women that are included in this book. There are seven questions that Pilate asked Jesus, and sevens are all over the place, but For our purposes today, seven signs that prove what Jesus can do. And today, looking at that first miracle, as I mentioned, when Jesus meets faith. There are five particular truths that I want you to understand. And 
five things that you can believe about Jesus. The first is this, is that Jesus cares about the small things. In, a, in the big scheme of things, running out of wine is not that big of a deal. It's inconvenient, it's embarrassing, but they still have water. It's, it's not like there's nothing else to drink. It's not like they're going to die of thirst, but it's embarrassing. That you didn't plan ahead, you didn't anticipate what was going to take place, and, and you may understand this, that a, a Jewish wedding is more than a one-day event. It's not an hour, it is a multi-day event, typically seven days and people are there, and they are hanging out for seven days. That's a lot of money that you got to spend on food and drink. And somewhere along the journey, they ran out of wine. Now let me just throw this little thing in here. I'm not going to get into wine versus strong drink or grape juice versus alcoholic and fermented wine, and, and we could parse the New Testament about how, what it means with when they had well drunk doesn't mean they were drunk, but they've been drinking for a long time. What about you? If I drink certain things for long enough, it just starts getting worse and worse. I like Sprite, and I drink Sprite when I'm sick. And about the third one, I'm like, man, this stuff is nasty. There are other things that you may drink, like Diet Coke. It's just nasty from the beginning. But if you like it, I'll pray for you. No, so I'm not going to get into whether they're getting drunk or not getting drunk or whether we should. I'm just going to tell you, there's only one reason to drink alcohol. It's not for the taste. It's to get a buzz or to get drunk. And so since the Bible is clearly against being drunk and against drunkenness, the best thing to do is not drink at all. I got a few amens. So I'm not promoting drinking or and I'm not saying that this passage is, I'm just telling you, we don't drink because there's no good reason to do it, because the purpose is anti-biblical. But Mary sees that they have no wine, and it is at minimum an embarrassment. It, it might be that you were at a, a wedding today, and they ran out of food, or they ran out of soda, or they ran out of tea, or whatever it is. And it's like, it's not the end of the world, but it's just kind of embarrassing. So Mary comes to him. But before I get into Mary and her faith in the next piece, just let me let you know this, that there are a lot of things in the Bible, a lot of instances in the Bible, and a lot of instances in life where God demonstrates that he cares about small things. It's not life and death. It's not the end of the world. It's not a major sickness. But he cares about small things. He, he doesn't just require us to come to him with something big and you're coming to me with this little bitty thing. He's not saying that. He says bring all of your needs to him. The prophet was at the school of prophets and they're cutting down wood building buildings at the school of the prophets and they lose an axe head as they're swinging the axe head falls off of the axe and it lands in the water 
not a big deal, except you can't go out to the hardware store and buy an axe. And so it's a borrowed axe on top of that. And so the prophet throws a stick out there into the, to the water, and the axe head floats to the top. It's just an axe. It's not life and death. It's not, it's not cancer. It's not a stroke. It's not a heart attack. It's not we're going to die. We're imprisoned or enslaved. It's just an axe. But God does the miraculous I told this story recently in a different setting, I believe it is, but back in about 1987, my parents were buying a new car, and my mom had narrowed it down to two colors. They had this white color, this is a regular white, or this sage green. Maybe, I think it was called blue sage, actually, I think that's what it was kind of a blue-green color. And so she's at the Nissan dealer, and she's asking to look at one that's in that color. They're like, we don't have any. Nobody in the entire Baton Rouge metropolitan area had any of that particular color. And she prays, Lord, I want to see one of those. And shortly after that, somebody drives one of those up to the service area. She looks at it and is like, yeah, I'll take the white. (laughs) Now, I just happen to think that it's not a coincidence, but God hears that request, and it's just a small thing. It's just the color of a car, and I just want to know if that's what I want. God does it because he cares about the small things. Frequently, we don't ask God to answer our request or for we don't put put our needs and our petitions out there because we don't think that he will or we don't want to bother him or we're just like he's too busy he's running the universe this little problem I've got but I would tell you that he cares about the small things and we see this in this miracle that it's just wine, it's just a little bit to drink. It's not like they don't have water because they fill the pots up with water. It's, but he does a miracle because he cares about the small things. I would tell you, secondly, that Jesus always has a plan, that we can believe that he always has a plan. When Mary comes to him and says, hey, they don't have any wine, and He says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Why bother me with this? And his reason is this, my hour has not yet come. It's not yet time. It's not time for me to start doing miracles because if I do a miracle, it will start the time clock. Calvary. If I start doing miracles, it will draw people and it will get their attention and they will begin to gather around and then once that happens, there's no going back. He says, it's not my time yet. But I would tell you that he always has a plan and, and nothing ever catches God by surprise. That even though he tells her, my hour's not yet come, he knows the hour's coming. He knows his, his time frame, and he knows why he's here, and he knows what's going to happen. He knows that he's going to end up at Calvary. He has a plan. He knows all of that that's coming. And 
I would tell you, though, that he probably really doesn't change his time. He's throwing that out there for a different reason. And, and it would be maybe like this when, when God speaks to Jonah and tells him to go to preach the destruction of Nineveh. Jonah doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh. So he goes to Tarshish. He gets in a ship. He flies to Tarshish. Flies. <laughs> he begins to sail up. God sends a storm, a great fish. Jonah goes overboard. They throw him overboard. Fish swallows him three days, spits him up on the land. Jonah then makes a, a long trek to Nineveh, and he preaches the gospel. And what he says is this, 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. That's his message. No repent. No get your house in order. 40 days, Nineveh's going to be destroyed. Well, they begin to repent. They begin to fast. They even make their animals fast. God says, all right, I'm going to hold off. And what Jonah says to God, he's like, I knew you were going to do that. I knew you were going to send me to tell them that destruction was coming, and then you weren't going to do it. And I don't really think that Jonah's mad because God made him look bad. He could care less about the Ninevites. He hated the Ninevites. He didn't care if they thought he was a false prophet. He just wanted them to die. And God wasn't going to kill them. God doesn't say, if you repent, I'll, I'll hold off. He doesn't say, if you, if you turn from your wicked ways, he just says, 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. But God knew. He doesn't change his mind. He already knows, I'm going to tell them this, so whenever they hear this, then they're going to repent, and when they repent, I'm going to forgive and hold off. He has a plan. He's throwing it out there. When Moses gets the Ten Commandments on the mountain, God's telling him, Moses, you tell the people they don't violate any of these. Oh, and by the way, when they violate them, here's the tabernacle plan. Here's a sacrificial system that's going to be the, the foreshadowing of what's going to take place at the cross. He had a plan. It wasn't like, oh, now they've sinned. What are we going to do? He already knew what he was going to do. Galatians 4 and 4 tells us, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. There was a time in God's, man, uh, God's mind and God's plan, and the Bible says that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Before he created everything, he already foresaw and he already planned for Jesus Christ to go to the cross to take the penalty for your sin and mine upon himself. And there is a plan for the second coming of Jesus. He is coming soon. We don't know the day or the hour, but he does. But what I would tell you is this. So whatever you need, there is a plan that God has for you. There is a plan that he has to meet your need. It may be today. It may be next week. It may be six years. But God knows exactly where you are, and he has a plan. I don't know if my dad came up with this. 
but he used to say all the time, God is seldom, or he is never late, but he is seldom early. He's never going to come too late, but he's seldom going to come earlier than he needs to. That he is an on-time God, and he is going to answer and meet your need in his time and in his plan. The question is, will we keep believing which is why Jesus says, the Bible says, when he comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will people still be believing and will they still be waiting? Will we still trust that he has a plan when it doesn't happen when we want? The third thing I would tell you is this, is that you need to believe that Jesus responds to faith. To believe that Jesus responds to faith. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Verse 5, now there were six stone water jars before the Jewish rites, there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Jesus has just got done telling his mother, my hour has not yet come. And she says, hey, you just do whatever he tells you. Understand, she's never seen him do a miracle. She's never seen him do anything. All she knows is he is a miracle child. All she knows is that the angel came and said, this is what's going to happen. All she knows is that the Holy Spirit overshadowed her and she conceived. All she knows is that, hey, I've got a word from God that he can do stuff like this, that he is the Messiah. And she says, whatever he says, you do it. And I don't know that her faith changed his plan. Maybe he's just throwing it out there as a test of faith. Hey, my hour's not yet come. She had a choice to make. Okay. She could say, I still believe you can do it. I still believe not only can you do it, I still believe that you will do it. They follow the instructions, and of course the water is turned to wine. And there's another instance. Syrophoenician woman wants her daughter healed. And Jesus says, we're not going to give bread. Oh, but even the dogs eat the crumbs from the table. And he said, I haven't seen that kind of faith in all of Israel. Go your way, your daughter is healed. That he responds to faith. And the Roman centurion whose servant was sick, he said, I don't need you to show up at my house. You just speak the word. And once again, he said, I haven't seen that kind of faith in Israel that people that understand that all I have to do is speak the word. I don't actually have to be there. And he responded to that faith. Jesus rebuked his disciples on numerous occasions for their little faith. I would tell you that faith is essential for salvation, that nobody comes into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ apart from faith. That it takes faith to 
believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life. It takes faith to believe he is the only way to heaven. It takes faith to believe that the sacrifice on the cross would take away your sin when you repent of your sin and you turn from your sin and turn to God. It takes faith to believe that when you go down in the waters of baptism, he washes away your sin. It takes faith to believe that when you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, speaking in a language you don't know, that that's really him coming to live on the inside. Nobody gets saved apart from faith. And when Jesus meets faith, he always responds. You've got to hurry. We started like the fourth thing you need to believe is this. He is the source of new wine. Just quickly, let me make the... The parallel here, these six jars, the passage tells us they are there for the rites of purification where they would do their ceremonial cleansing. And Jesus uses those. He doesn't say, go get some different jars. He uses those and says, fill those with water. And he uses that to turn it to wine. I would tell you that Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament law. This ceremonial cleansing water, Jesus made it into wine. No longer would people have to rely on the law after he goes to the cross, but they would be able to go to him. No longer would they have to go through those Old Testament ceremonial processes. Jesus is the only thing we need. And he would say later, in alluding to the Spirit, that it is new wine. That when we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ and we'll, we are filled with his spirit, old things have passed away and behold, all things are become new. And that new spirit that comes into us, it's like the new wine that is put into a new bottle. Or in our case, it is the spirit that comes into a recreated vessel so that we can handle it. And on the day of Pentecost, We have that allusion again to wine when Peter says, these are not drunk like you think they are. It is a different wine. It is a new salvation. And lastly, Jesus saves the best for last. When the master of the feast tasted it, he didn't know where it came from calls the bridegroom and he says everyone serves the good stuff first and then they bring out the bad stuff later he said but you have saved the best for last what I would tell you is that Jesus does all things well that everything that he does He does well. He doesn't do things part way. If he's making wine, it's not just going to be any wine, but it's the best wine. If he's going to heal, he's going to do something that the doctors can't do. When he provides, he's going to provide in a way that you couldn't do it yourself and nobody else could help you. But while there are individual things we need and What I would say about the best for last is this. That while Adam and Eve walked and talked with 
with God in the cool of the day in the garden. It was a utopia. It's nothing compared to what you and I will experience when we get to heaven. Heaven will be a utopia unlike anything we can imagine. Eye has not seen. Ear has not heard, neither has it entered the hearts of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. While heaven will be great, spending an eternity with Jesus will be indescribable. While Adam and Eve could just walk with God and talk with him in the cool of the day, when we get to heaven, we're going to be in his presence all the time. It's not just once a day, but we're going to be in his presence. Which is why the old song says, Jesus is what? will make it heaven for me. That being in his presence will be what it takes to make it heaven. Not just a utopia, but an eternity with Jesus Christ. There's a lot of things we could talk about in this passage. These are just five. We need to believe that he cares about the small things and that he always has a plan. Believe that he responds to faith. Believe that he is the source of new wine or our salvation. And believe that he saves the best for last. There's coming a day when you and I can spend an eternity with Jesus Christ. There is no question that salvation is the most important thing we receive from God by faith. There is no question that while miracles are great and having water turned to wine or being healed or God providing, all of that is good. The most important thing is salvation. That if He doesn't do anything else for me, Besides, take me to heaven, that's enough. That just getting to heaven is really what it's all about because my life, no matter, if I, if I live to be 100, that's just, a, that's just a blink or snap of the fingers in the scope of eternity, but spending an eternity with Jesus Christ, that's a whole nother ball ballgame. Verse 11, that this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. As they come to the music, our responsibility and choice today is to believe. Jesus has manifested his glory in this service already as we felt his presence and we felt his power. We experienced his nearness. And while the majority of people in this room are already saved, there are probably a multitude of things that you would like to see God do. A number of years ago, I came up with 
what I would call, I guess, a recipe for a miracle. You have to have a need. If you don't need anything, God doesn't do anything. What I've, I've seen people, man, I don't ever, I'll never see God do any miracles. Well, if you pray for a miracle, you might have to go through a trial. You might have to have something. Nobody gets healed unless they're sick. I mean, God's not going to heal me from being ugly. He's not going to change the way I look. He's not going to keep me from getting older. Oh, but if I get sick, he can show forth his power and bring healing. If I need provision, now it's an opportunity for God to demonstrate his power and that he is Jehovah Jireh. You got to have a need. And almost always, we have to have faith. Not only that he can, but that he will. Very seldom does he interact and do the miraculous apart from faith. The third piece of the recipe is this, is we actually have to ask. James would tell us we have not because we ask not. I've probably told the story before and it's, I wasn't planning on telling it, but I just want to drive this point home. For three weeks I dealt with shin splints one time, both legs. Finally got tired of it and I said, all right, this is on a Wednesday. I said, I'm going to the doctor tomorrow. My wife, and I've told the story, my wife asked the question, have you had anybody pray for you? No? She said, well, why don't you do that? That Wednesday night at church, after service was over, not during the middle of service, when I was, hey, pastor, I've been having this issue. I'm going to the doctor tomorrow unless God heals me you pray for this instantaneously it was gone he could have healed me the first day but he didn't I didn't ask I'll just deal with it Lord when I'm tired of dealing with it I'll go see if a doctor can help me I had a need but he didn't move I believed he was a miracle worker but he didn't move but when I asked He said, let me show you my power. Let me demonstrate that I am a miracle worker. And that's the fourth fourth thing, and that is this. The will of a God who can answer. You can pray to whatever God you want, but if they don't have any power, it's not going to do you any good. But when we go to the God of the universe, who has the power to answer and the power to heal and the power to deliver, that he will show up and he will work on our behalf. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Jesus 
often asked questions. In fact, when people would come to him and they would ask him a question, he would respond with a question. Very seldom just gave answers. And I believe what is true today is this. When he says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? The real answer is everything. Because he demonstrated that what concerned her concerned him. He doesn't say, I'm not concerned about this. I'm not doing anything. He just asked the question. And then she demonstrated her faith and God said, okay, I'll do that. What does your concern have to do with me? Jesus cares about what bothers us and troubles us. You got any concerns today? Earlier in the service, I asked anybody that had a need. There was only two hands. This is not my first rodeo. I know there are more than two needs in this place today. But I also know this, that if we sit with our needs and we don't take them to God, He will let us keep them. What bothers you and what concerns you, He cares about. So as you stand together about 15 seconds ago, I felt the power of God move into this room. I'm going to give you one more opportunity for today. You don't need me to give you an opportunity. It's just an expression. But what do you have need of today? What's bothering you? What's concerning you? Maybe it's healing for you, or maybe it's healing for a loved one, or healing for a friend, or maybe it's provision. You need a job. You need a different job. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe you've got some people in your family that you know they're not where they need to be, and you're praying that God would bring them back. One more time, would you give whatever you have today? Would you lift your hands and would you just give it to him right now?